This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. For the first three quarters of 2008, Brazil's economy grew at a robust rate of more than 6%. As the world financial crisis takes its toll, signs have begun to appear that business in Brazil could run into trouble. The Bavispa stock market index has been volatile, and falling commodity prices have eroded export earnings. How will Brazil fare during the coming months? To answer this question, Knowledge at Wharton interviewed leaders from industries ranging from petrochemicals and telecommunications to banking, real estate, and manufacturing. In this special report, CEOs and other experts share their insights into what's in store for Brazil. Our guest today is Candido Brasher, President and CEO of Banco Atau BBA. Uh, Candido, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Well, uh, to start with a question that's everybody on everybody's mind, uh, what impact has the international financial crisis had on the Brazilian economy, and specifically on the banking and investment banking sectors? Okay, I think it's it's early to to say to use the past tense. I mean, what impact it had? I mean, it is having an impact, and it's having an impact which is larger than what uh, initially we had anticipated. Uh, the fact is, I mean, we thought at this time, because Brazil has so large foreign exchange reserves, because uh, the trade balance is positive, because, in short, because external dependence uh, is so reduced in relation to what it used to be in the previous crisis. I mean, during the 90s, in the various crises there were, Asian crisis, Russian crisis, I mean, you name it, every crisis, Brazil was hit very severely because we were so dependent upon uh, foreign savings uh, that, I mean, we immediately, either we, uh, we had our exchange rate uh, devaluing yes. uh, very fast, or if we had a, a peg, as it was the case, we had to send our interest rates through the roof in order to, I mean, to attract capital and so on. And, in, in all the, the cases, I mean, so if there was a liquidity crisis abroad, we would be very severely hit. We thought that this time it would be different. And as a matter of fact, I mean, we are not seeing capital flight. I mean, the central bank still has exactly the same $206 billion reserves. I mean, it's, it's not being necessary to, to use reserves in order to, to face uh, the, the need of uh, investors to, to take their, broad, their dollars away. But didn't President Lula just yesterday authorize the use of the reserves to stabilize the real? Uh, is that likely to happen, do you think? I didn't see this being authorized. I think this doesn't require an authorization. I mean, oh, really? The, okay. Ça va sans dire. I mean, the, the, okay. the, this, uh, I mean, this is what reserves are for. Right. Uh, but so far, they have not been used for I that. See. What President Lula authorized yesterday was they authorized the central bank to buy uh, private, private uh, issued paper from the banks uh, in the reserve requirement, I mean, in the discount window of the reserve requirement. Yes. Uh, which is every central bank does everywhere in the world. But here in Brazil, the central bank was afraid of making because uh, of some specificities of the law here and because justice here can be very uh, tough on public employees. So is that enough, do you think, to restore confidence? Or do other things need to be done? Actually, 
I don't think it's, I mean, what we have here is a liquidity crisis because everybody, as in the rest of the, as in the, rest of the world, then credit markets uh, are very much, uh, not frozen, I'd say, but I mean, they have diminished a lot, uh, their, their intensity. Uh, because banks and companies think that they will need the liquidity for themselves. I mean, I think it's very much, uh, it's very much the, the the mirror of what's happening in the in the developed world. So, despite the fact that this time, I mean, none of the Brazilian banks has come under suspicion of being weak. I mean, the balance sheets are very strong. The Brazilian corporate sector is extremely under-leveraged. The Brazilian uh, citizen is under-leveraged. I mean, the credit-to-GDP ratio in Brazil just passed above 30%. I mean, it, it used to be in the low 20s uh, forever, and 30% is still quite a, quite a, low, uh, a, low, a low figure. So despite all that, uh, the fact that I mean, we are witnessing in the world what what we are seeing. I mean, with the European banks, with the with the Amer American banks, uh, it has made everybody more precautious and uh, I mean, bring the, the the credit to to a halt here. Right. Uh, you referred to the strong two hundred billion dollar reserves. Now, obviously, a lot of this was driven by strong commodity prices. Now, in fact, I remember you were quoted some time ago in The Economist saying that in the past, commodity prices paid for the party. Uh, yes. is now, the, now is it the time for the hangover, do you think? Or how, how will commodity prices be affected? Commodity prices will definitely be affected by, by, the, the, by the fact that I mean, the world is going to grow less, and so I, mean, I don't know if they will be affected 10, 20, 30 percent, or, or, or how much. Uh, so we will not have the same trade uh, trade surplus we we used to have. Uh, but if we uh, so, I mean, maybe the party will not be as fancy as before. I mean, you, you can't spend uh, as we were spending. But uh, I think still we have. Uh, I mean, we are low-cost producers in most of these commodities, so I mean, it will still be very profitable business for for who's doing it. And I think the countries will still have a trade surplus. And now we have oil. Uh, I mean, we don't have it this year, but we will have it yes. two, three years from now. Uh, and uh, and I don't know. Well, I mean, there is a big discussion going on in the country about what will be made will be made of the oil proceeds. I mean, how will the state take its share of them, and the which form, and uh, and what's it going to be done with this share? I mean, are these dollars going to be brought into the country, thus appreciating the currency and rendering every other production less competitive? Is it going to be kept abroad, as it happens in, uh, I think it's with Norway, they have a fund which is kept abroad, and they only use the, the, the proceeds of it, the, the interest, and so on? Uh, I mean, so this is another subject, but it's a very interesting discussion we are having in the country right now. And uh, what's the expectation? What do you think is likely to happen? I think we're still in the beginning of the of the discussion, and most of the discussion is centering on how is the government going to take its share through taxes, exploiting it through Petrobras, where they are the controlling shareholders, or selling licenses to 
to companies. It's, I, I really want to know how to answer your, your question. What's, what's I'm just very happy, and I think it's a very mature uh, thing that the country is having this discussion. Excellent. Because uh, the government could simply be setting these licenses, uh, putting the money into the treasury and spending it before the next elections. Yes. And yeah. this is not what's happening. But uh, from, from the viewpoint of the, of the solidity of the fundamentals of the country, I think I mean, it's, it's very good news. First, that this discussion is taking place, and second, that there's all this oil there. I mean, which I mean, in three, what, four, what, five years will. What, what is the likely economic impact? Uh, I'm not an expert in that, but uh, I, for you to have an idea, I mean, measured reserves, they are 14 billion barrels. And the, the most uh, modest figures uh, expected. Uh, go from 50 to 70 billion barrels, people are saying, in reserves. Uh, and then I had, a, if you export, uh, at present price, if you export 1 million barrels, and now I don't know if it's a day or, uh, I don't know how, the units there, uh, it means $50 billion a year uh, in terms of uh, proceeds. It's not, so it's not, not pocket change, exactly. Not pocket change, no, it's a lot of money. Interesting. Uh, so coming back to the situation with the banks, I saw a statement by the finance minister, Guido Matenga, uh, referring to the fact that Brazilian banks don't have a solvency problem. They have a liquidity problem. Do you, do you agree with that view? I think they have neither. I mean, um, not the solvency, not the, not the liquidity How problem so? uh, right now. I mean, uh, what, uh, what is happening is that Everybody's keeping its liquidity for itself. Right. I see. Okay. Understood. Uh, coming now to uh, Banco Itaú uh, and, and BBA, uh, how has uh, your institution been affected by what's going on? Well, uh, first I think I would have to describe to you our institution to understand sure. what it is. I mean, Itaú BBA is a part of the Itaú Group. Yes. The, the Itaú Group is... I mean, it's a holding company, which is Itaú Financial Holding, which is the company publicly traded, which holds uh, Itaú BBA and Itaú. Itaú BBA takes care of 2,000 corporate clients, and that's all. That's all it does. Itaú does all the rest. So Itaú BBA... That's the second largest uh, private bank in the country. That's the second largest private bank in the country, or the largest... Depending on how you on how you measure it, I mean, if measured by market capitalization, there are times when we are the first or the second. I mean, they are both very close, but okay. I mean, be fair to say it's the it's the second largest privately owned bank in the in the country. Uh, I don't know. I mean, after all these price changes in the stock exchange, now I don't know, but it was uh, among the the twenty largest in the bank in the world. Sure. Yeah, I think it's serious. I mean, among the, the twenty largest in the world. So uh, we are the result uh, of an acquisition Itaú made of BBA Kreditanstalt, which was uh, typically a wholesale bank. And uh, Itaú acquired 95%, 95.75% of BBA Kreditanstalt, merged it with its own uh, wholesale business and created a separate bank, where the employees still hold a 4.25% stake and a 50% vote in the in the bank. So the idea is that the bank uh, is managed uh, I mean, very much focusing on 
being profitable with its its market, which is this 2,000 uh, corporate clients, uh, and being specialized in such a few number of clients, we normally say that we are very inefficient because we are 1,200 people to deal with 2,000 clients. So the, the really the efficiency ratio is not is not mm-hmm. very good. But we do everything with these clients. I mean, we go, we do. I mean, we pay their payroll, and we do their IPO, and we do their money. So and passing through the equity derivative to derivatives, cash management, credit, everything. Uh, and what is, uh, I mean, what we strive to is to be the leader in each of these markets in which we work with these clients. And uh, I think we can say, I mean, that in 90% of these markets, uh, we are second to none in, the, in dealing with these clients. I mean, this enables the bank, I think, to be quite profitable. I mean, we've been having a, a return on equity above 20%, 25% for four years now. Uh, and uh, and to, I think it will enjoy a, a good reputation uh, with its clients. Uh, there are some markets, for instance, investment banks, in which I mean we, we invested heavily four years ago, uh, and where in the beginning it was told to us that I mean, it, it would be very difficult to be successful if you're not a pure play, if you're not a pure investment bank. I don't think people would say the same thing today. <laughs> I mean, after after everything that's happened. I mean, but the fact is that I mean we uh, we put a we put a lot of effort into using all the commercial strengths we, we acquired with our clients because we serve them in so many markets uh, in order to originate transactions for investment banking. And we've been very successful. I mean, this year, so far, I mean, we are the leader in the equity rankings, the leader in the fixed income uh, rankings in the, in the local market, uh, and I mean, we rank among the first five in, in M&A. Uh, this in... in, in, in in uh, investment banking, where everything is measured, but we—I mean—I think we also occupy leadership positions in cash management. We're also the leader in the market. In credit, we are among the largest. So uh, the the base—I mean, the, the the idea behind this is that we invest a lot of time and effort into knowing the client, knowing the corporate client, understanding its business, and. Uh, uh, Elaborating products which we think will, will suit them better. You know, most of what we do is tailor-made, right. be it in cash management, be it in investment banking, be it in derivatives. I mean, it's right. and the mar- present market conditions, the investment banking part of the business is obviously well, in the present, more affected. Yeah, in the present market conditions, I mean, the, the investment banking, I mean, is ex- with the exception of M and A, I think I mean, the, the equities and, and fixed income I mean, is very much paralyzed. But uh, on the other hand, I mean, credit uh, became more important than it was. I mean, so this is the good thing of of having such a diversified portfolio of products. I mean, is that you always have something which is being necessary? Now, in a in a such a diversified organization such as yours, which is also fairly strong, uh, you know, in terms of your capital position, uh, where do you see opportunities in the turmoil that's going on in the markets today? Well, I think, uh, Marco, I'd see more opportunities if I were 
uh, if I were a private equity fund. Yeah, I was then assuming so many things, so cheap and so on. Uh, here, basically, I think the opportunity is the opportunity of sticking to your clients. And it's to, to once more, I mean, earning the, the reputation of being a, a relationship-oriented bank. I, mean, I think we've done this for the past 20 years. I mean, there was no no scarcity of prices during these periods, and I think I mean we uh, we we've earned much of the respect we have with our clients for being constant with them throughout the crisis, and that's what we are trying to do now. Uh, you mentioned it, the, the, the 2,000 clients you serve. Are you trying to develop your uh, growth strategy regionally within Latin America and the rest of the world? Could you explain where you see your growth coming from? It's a very good question because there are so many, so many different possibilities of, of growing and we have to choose. So recently, as I told you, I mean, growth came from the product base. We've enlarged the product base as much as we could. Then growth came from adding more clients. We used to have a thousand clients. Now we have two thousand. Itaú Bank, the retail bank, just transferred to us the thousand next largest uh, clients, uh, and uh, and we were very very reluctant to to double the quantity of clients. So overnight and uh, you know, prepared ourselves very much for it and we are very happy with the with the results. I'm not sure though that going from two to four thousand in Brazil would be a, would be a good thing because then you you start dealing with really different a very different kind of company one which where maybe I mean the all the time uh, we invest in each client I mean, wouldn't wouldn't pay. Then, I mean, we have the alternative of, of going uh, abroad. I mean, we are present in Argentina and Chile as a wholesale bank, I mean, dealing with clients in these places. And uh, the group also has a bank in Europe, uh, which we use, I mean, to support the subsidiaries of our clients internationally and to know the, the head offices of our multinational clients in, in Brazil. But in Argentina, uh, I think, uh, I mean, the market welcomes banks. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting environment for banks, but a very risky one in, in terms, of, uh, in terms of, uh, of the economy as a whole. So uh, we go carefully there. Uh, I think a lot of growth will come, I think most of our growth will come from Brazil itself. Because uh, as I, I think Brazil uh, will have, uh, it's funny to say this in in such a, a turmoil we are living, but I think Brazil will have many good years ahead because I mean of these commodities and because of all the oil that that is coming. So I think, and many companies in Brazil will grow a lot. So I think that uh, following up, I mean the growth of this of our client base and more clients which will be added to, to the client base as the economy grows, you know, will keep us will keep us busy for the near future. Uh, I, I know that uh, many sp some Spanish banks like Banco Santander and BBVA have also been growing very aggressively in Latin America. Uh, what kind of a competitive dynamic does that create for a bank or, or an organization like yours? And where do you find 
you need to position yourself to deal with that dynamic? Well, in Brazil, as you know, I mean, uh, only Santander is, is present. BBVA was here and left uh, a few a few years ago. And despite uh, Santander being a very uh, a very large bank and just recently having acquired uh, ABN, uh, which will make Santander I mean, rank among the the three largest uh, banks in in the country privately owned banks in the country, with the exception of, of Banco do Brasil. Um, I think that the competition from Santander is not, is not different from, from the competition we had from, from other uh, local, local banks. And this, uh, I could say this almost as a compliment to, to Santander, because they were able to, to absorb the, the knowledge of, of the banks they, they acquired and to use it uh, very, very competitively in the in the local market. I mean, really, I mean, uh, in all those years I've been in banking, it's 20 years now, more than 20 years. Uh, international banks have not been a serious threat to the to the leadership of the of the local retail banks. I'd like to uh, understand a little bit about your own career. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came into your present leadership role at uh, at RBBA? Yes. Uh, well, I, I graduated in business administration in Brazil in Getúlio Vargas Foundation. And uh, I went to work right after university in Zurich for Swiss Bank Corporation. I spent uh, nearly one year and then lived in Paris also almost one year working for an American company which speculated in commodities and so it was one of one of the primeval hedge funds <laughs> I think of those of those days and, and then I came back to Brazil and, and I've been in banking ever since I, I was in working for small wholesale banking banks until 88 when uh, my father uh, chartered a small bank I mean, with 20 people, 20 million dollars capital, which uh, he borrowed half from Kreditanstaltbankverein, which was a, an Austrian bank, and he and a partner had 50% of the bank, Kreditanstalt had the other, the other half. I left the bank where I was a, a director to, to work with him on the first day, and, uh, and we developed this, this uh, wholesale franchise. And we were very lucky. Times uh, did help. I mean, there were many opportunities, many crises, and the bank grew. I mean, to be among the most important wholesale banks in Brazil. I mean, from the 20 million dollars capital, it went to 600 million dollars in uh, in net worth, and it had this thousand clients I mentioned. I mean, it was good enough to attract the interest of Itaú. Uh, in a time, this was in 2001, 2002, when Kreditanstalt was no longer there. It had been sold to Bank Austria, which in its turn had been sold to Hypovereinsbank of Germany. And after that, Hypovereins has been sold to Unicredit of Italy. So it's, uh, there were many, many murders. But the fact is that, uh, I mean, it all acquired then the, the whole of the foreign part of the bank, a significant part of the of the of the executives and I mean, Itaú BBA was created. My father was 
the, the president of Itaubibie initially for the first, this was in 2002, so for the first three years my father was the president. Uh, when he retired I was elected president and that's how I came here. Excellent. Uh, in your career, what would you say is the biggest leadership challenge that you have faced? How did you overcome it and what did you learn from it? I think the great, I mean, you know, normally the most difficult leadership challenge you face is the one you are facing at the moment. I mean, because the other ones seem to be, somehow they, I mean, you've came through them. And, uh, so, so what are you up against uh, right now? What I'm up against right now is growing. I mean, uh, BBA Credit Start was a bank of 300 people. Then we moved to, to Itaú, uh, created Itaú BBA, and we were 600 people. Uh, now we doubled the amount of clients, the, the bank, I mean, the, the, the profits have multiplied six times, and we are a bank of 1,200 people. And uh, it's not the same. I mean, the culture in a, in a bank like this cannot be the same of a bank of 300 people. I mean, the, the kind of culture we had where, I mean, you lead by example, uh, you know everybody by name, and, uh, and you are very fast, and you are very lean, take decisions, are very flexible, agile. Entrepreneurial. We, we strive to, to be this, but you have to be it on a different way. You have to be more structured, you have to... Uh, it all helps us a lot in this. I mean, the group has a, has a control culture which is, which is very strong. And I think we are being successful in, in adapting, I mean, this need to be flexible, agile, fast, to the fact that we I mean, are part of a very large group, that we are the largest wholesale bank in the country, I think. I mean, we respond for about 20% of everything that's done in Itaú. And I think, I mean, this is, this is a big challenge, a very interesting one. And so it's growing. So far, what would you say we've learned from it? Uh, that you can, that you should be able to review almost every point of view you have. And there are three things that we don't, I think, I wouldn't like to, to review three principles. The one, basic one is, I mean, uh, have the client's interest as a goal. So we focus on the client. I mean, I mean, if you are able to deal with the client's interest, you'll, you'll do fine. Uh, the other one, of course, is ethics. I don't talk much about that, but that's what it is. And the, the third one is meritocracy. So I think, I mean, Apart from these three principles, many other ideas I had which I thought I would never change. Some of them I didn't, actually. Uh, like casual everyday, for instance, which we have now. But, but, but this is just... A, and, and there are so many others. I mean, you have to be, to be, able, uh, to, to be willing to check your, your points of view and, and to see if they still make sense or not. One final question. How do you define success? I'll know it when I have it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.